The Brewing Network is proud to present Beer Radio that turns ordinary homebrew into award-winning beer. The Jameel Show. And now, your hosts, Jameel Zainashef and John Plisse. Good morning, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Amen. Hey, John. <laughs> I like how you start every show with that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just seems to seems well, you, to fit. It's your holiness coming through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no brewing children, just uh, brewing brothers and sisters. Yes. So it seems like your coffee dosage is just about right this morning. Well, instead of bringing a cup, I brought giant, sixteen giant ounces worth thermos. <laughs> giant UPS thermos. This is really good coffee from Trader Joe's. I don't know if you're. It's sealed packed and they have this little air vacuum on it and yeah. it's really tasty. Lightly roasted, tastes like chocolate. Mm. Yeah. Is it is it biscuity at all? No, but you know, I do I do have some feedback. I got a little little beer score sheet from uh, Jamil Zanishev here uh-huh. on my uh, Munich Dunkel. Yeah, and it says that biscuity took, that took third from uh, Cal State Fair. And Jamil says roasty, biscuity up front, followed by rich dark baked bread. Slight caramel follows. Very low hop, noble that, hop flavor. Some pretty good, pretty good comments. That's some pretty good feedback. I write a pretty, pretty good score sheet there. Wait, this is my favorite. Finish is soft and malty, nice and biscuity, long through the finish. Uh-huh. I don't make fun of, <laughs> of the word biscuity. I just, uh, I kind of agree that uh, it, I love. It. He gave me a thirty-five, so that that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I, I I remember that category it wasn't wasn't that I think, great. I think maybe my biscuitiness is wearing off on you a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, no, uh, you know, biscuity is a big a big part of a lot of a lot of beer flavors um, because of because of malt. Uh, you know, malt is uh, related to you know it's 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 grain, right? You know, yeah. barley grain and Munich and, can do that, or and and wheats and all those things that go into beers, and uh, you know, very similar to uh, toast and uh, you know biscuits and any of the baked goods. Uh, you're going to get a lot of those flavors in in beers, and if and if you're not, um, you know, then it's you know that's you know so they're all malt related, right? But uh, so yeah, no, nothing wrong with biscuity, but uh, I, I, I it was funny because somebody pointed out that you did use the word biscuity oh, quite a bit, oh, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, but how so. else can you describe some things, you know? Well, yeah, but yeah, biscuity is is in a lot of lot of beer flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so. Uh, we're talking about Munich Hellas today, but, uh, before we get into that, I wanted to do, uh, one quick, uh, reader email. Uh, Steve writes, uh, hi Jamel, first off, thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with the homebrew community. I love the Jamel show and have, uh, brewed your APA and ordinary bitter and love them. I had plans to brew this weekend, but didn't know what to brew. I landed on the Cali Common Steam. Uh, I've made this once before. But as an extract, I wanted to try your all-grain recipe. I went to my local homebrew shop, and of course, no uh, light chocolate malt, the pale chocolate malt. I'd hate to drive an hour f- to B3 for a half-pound package. Should I just forget about it, or can I sub something? Uh, thanks again, by the way. Is it Jamil or Jamel? Um, Jamal. Or Jamil. I like Jamal. Uh, Jamel <laughs> okay. is what I say, but... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually cool with anything, uh, you know, that's, you know, relatively close to, to how it's spelled. 
just as long as you're not trying to be rude, you know, then other than that, that's cool. I, you know, I understand. Hmm. No problem. Uh, you know, trying to sub out, uh, I had a, a amber recipe out there earlier and in that one, there's so many bold flavors that subbing out, you know, about 50% regular chocolate for the amount of pale chocolate you'd use is, it's not ideal, but you can kind of get away with it. Because in there, you know, there's a lot of other flavors going on. If you get a little more intense roastiness going on, eh, it's all right. You know, it's it's hidden by, you know, some intense hopping and other things like that. In In something like this, where you don't have a lot of other grain flavors and things like that going on uh i would i would hesitate to swap out something like that so i imagine if you were really creative and had a lot of time to experiment you could work up some sort of thing that would give you that uh, what you get from the pale chocolate is really kind of an intense toastiness mm. and you know qu- not quite as roasty not as chocolatey but more toasty uh, intense, toasty, dark biscuity <laughs> <laughs> type of thing, right? You're like go through your vocabulary, like, what do I do? No, no, no. I, I was yeah, yeah, on that, purpose. That, that was uh, awesome. No, but y- you would you would get those uh, those you know darker bread flavors uh, from that thing from that uh, pale chocolate, and that's the reason we use pale chocolate in that mm-hmm. recipe. So I, I'd hesitate to sub something out, but you could probably you know do some sort of you know biscuit malt victory malt. You know, a tiny bit of, uh, chocolate or something like that. And, uh, you know, that might, that might do it. Yeah? Yeah. No? Sure. I never used chocolate wheat, so you got me. Chocolate wheat? I, I said nothing about chocolate wheat. Okay. The pale chocolate. Pale chocolate, sorry. You guys carry it? Yes, we do. Yeah. It's great. I, I used it once and I've, I never stopped using it since and I, I find lots of uses for it. Uh, you can sub out, uh, little bits of, uh, uh, you know, if you have chocolate malt in there, a lot of times, uh, a lot of the recipes that I had before, I took, uh, 50% of the chocolate malt and subbed out pale chocolate. Mm. And, uh, it really, uh, does a nice job of, uh, uh, bridging that, uh, flavor gap between the roasty and, and just the regular, uh, malt flavors. Would you say you'd have to be pretty careful substituting dark malts? Just, I mean. Oh, yeah. They're yeah, so yeah. apparent. I mean. Right. Well, that's an excellent point because, Sometimes you can get, uh, you know, one person's, uh, you know, black patent or roast malt or, you know, chocolate malt. They come in a range of, uh, Lovabond, uh, uh, values. Mm-hmm. And you can't just quickly sub out one for the other and, and get exactly the same thing. So, you know, that's, that's gonna change. You can get close, but that's gonna change sometimes. You made so. a comment on my dunkle, too. <laughs> yeah. no, this is good. This is good stuff. Yeah. People want to hear it. So anyways, thanks, this. thanks Steve for that, uh, that email. You, you recommended that I sub out my carafa for a special two, I believe. Right. Are you using what were you using? Um, it, it, I, I don't know. I, I, I used have chocolate malt, but yeah. yeah. And you said you know sub two carafa two. Yeah, it, you know a dunkel shouldn't be a uh, mead dunk shouldn't be that roasty. Okay. I think was the issue, wasn't it? Yeah. Isn't that what I said? There was a little bit of carafa, but not a. Yeah, you want to use the the carafa special. Okay. Because the special doesn't have the husk, so it doesn't give you that roasty flavor. Okay. So it'll give you color, but not as much roast. That's what they make the Cinemar, uh color extract that the German breweries will use mm-hmm. to color up their beers. It's made from malt, so it's uh, Reinheitskabot. That's uh, approved. Accepted. Yeah. Okay. And they make it from the Carafa Special, which is the huskless, and it has almost no roasty flavor whatsoever. Hmm. Strictly just for color. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Uh, Munich Hellas. Yeah, good old Munich Hellas. All right, so we're going to cover Munich Hellas today. John, why don't you tell us about Munich Hellas. What does Munich Hellas uh, taste like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? Well, Munich Hellas is just basically malty. Um, it's all malt pronounced. Um, in the nose, you should just probably smell some sweetness from the German pills. No DMS, slight grainy character, biscuitiness, maybe graham cracker coming from the Munich malt. Full body coming from the Carafoam. You know, it should just fill your mouth with goodness. Um, finishes out relatively dry, like 1008, 1010. Um, I would use Noble Hops, either Saws or Hollow Tower. Be very conservative with your hops. You don't want it to be bitter. I would say it's more of a malt-pronounced aroma. Um, other than that, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you're looking for a malty lager in the long run. And not really bitter like a Northern German Pils or a Bohemian Pils. Mm-hmm. Um Right, right. So, yeah, it's it's uh, malt focused. Yeah, yeah, it's all malt focused, but, yeah, but not sweet. I, I think yeah, this not is, sweet. Is this is point. the problem that well most for most sure. homebrew examples and most uh, and and a lot of the commercial examples in the United States at, at the local brew pubs and stuff tend to be far too sweet. Now, you don't want to add a ton of hops to counter that. Right. It needs to attenuate well enough that. Um, you get uh, uh, a, a clean, easy drinking beer. Again, this is a beer. We've talked about this before. That uh, is a beer you can drink in liters. Oh yeah. You know, for you sure. go to Germany and you you drink this and you get a beer. You're getting like a liter of of a Hellas, or yeah. you know, a half liter. You know, that if you're if you're wimpy, you're getting the half liter. Or if it's if you got a you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, a meeting right after that, you're going to have only a half liter. I'm not wimpy. Right. But you can, you can easily drink a liter of this stuff. Oh yeah. And if it was, uh, too much body, too much sweetness, too much residual sugar, and balanced with too much hopping, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to drink it that easy. Yeah. This is something that goes down easy, but again, like, like you're saying, John, it has, it's malt focused. Oh, for sure. And malty doesn't mean sweet, and sweet doesn't mean malty. You can have a dry yet malty beer. Mm-hmm. You can have a sweet yet non-malty Non-malty. beer. Yeah. You know, lacking in malt flavor. Definitely don't want cloying sweetness in the finish. Right. It, it needs to finish out clean yeah. and fairly crisp, but with a, uh, you know, not bone dry like a, like a bit burger, mm-hmm. but, uh, That's really you know, fairly, um, uh, you know, there is some residual sweetness to it, but it's, it's on the, the lower side. It's just enough to kind of carry it across. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, back up that maltiness. I was talking to, uh, Matt Brindleson from Firestone. He had a great point about beer in general. Beer is malty, you know, in general. Because it, you make it from malt. Yeah. Well, it's just exactly. by character. It's just right. malty. So, right. He tries to dry out his beers as dry as he can because mm-hmm. his belief is it's gonna be, it's gonna be malty anyways. So right. I but again, malty and sweet have a, nothing to do with each other. Right, exactly. They're two different things. Right. But I think in the Munich Hellas, a lot of the malt character comes from the use of carafoam, just a, a, a body texture. I mean, you can have a well-attenuated Hellas that finishes out at 08, but the carafoam, I think, can contribute to a mouthfeel of maltiness. Yeah, see, I uh, I wouldn't use a carafoam. Okay. See, I would. But I just think it adds head retention and adds that nice, creamy, malty character to it, you know. Yeah, but see, malty, malty is, is, is a flavor, not a feel. Oh, okay. Well, then... All right. Well, German pills will definitely give you your maltness, 
but I think Carafilma adds some Maltiness. body to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I think Maltiness. It, it does. Well, it adds bodies. So, I mean, if, my helicinin finishes out at 08, uh-huh. you know. Um, well, the mash temperature will have a big effect. Well, I mash high 155 yeah. in this, you know, but I also do a protein rest, too. Uh-huh. And I think that contributes a lot to the malt character, too, in general. So, The protein rest? Mm-hmm. Huh. I do, I do a protein rest in 135, I think. And how does that affect the maltiness? Well, I would say my sacrification rest in 155 affects the maltiness, but my protein rest, I think, contributes to malt aroma and also a little bit of flavor. I, I, see, I don't think so. I, I I think, uh, because what, what's happening in that protein rest, you're breaking down, uh, you know, the long chain proteins down Mm -hmm. into medium and short chain proteins, which will affect, uh, to some extent the, the body, some extent the clarity, some extent, um, you know, and to a much greater extent, the uh, head retention, the foam characteristics of the uh, generating head, and then um, the high mal- higher, you know, ch- going to a higher mash temperature will not increase maltiness. It increases the long chain sugars that are left over after fermentation. The long chain, uh, the what, dextrins. What aren't, doesn't don't you add those, dextrins to add maltiness for body to a to no, a beer? No, no. Uh, the dextrins don't necessarily have a whole lot of flavor to them. Hmm. Um, you can take maltodextrin powder, right? Pop it in your mouth, right? Doesn't taste really malty. No. Yeah, it's uh, so the the malt flavors come from other things other than mash temperature. Mash temperature will affect long chain sugars, overall fermentability, and uh, you know the finishing gravity. So you can get more body that way, but it's not going to give you the malty flavors. Cool. The malty flavors, one of the, you know, the only way you're going to really control those malty flavors. Uh, we're kind of getting a little off track here, but no, this is good. Uh, the only way you're really going to control those malty flavors is. Um, the yeast can do things that get in or out of the way of the multi flavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for the hops and. Uh, but you would and but yeast is, is affects the maltiness from your your sacrification rest. So if you have a higher temp, your yeast isn't going to absorb as much sugar. No, so that's going to affect the no. body of your beer. Which the is body, which but is that's an impression not, of maltiness. No, body maltiness and body are not the same thing. Okay. Again, you can have a dry beer with a very thin body and lots of maltiness. Do you have a commercial example or something <laughs> I can think of? <laughs> yeah, the, um, you know, but so um, anyway, let me let me finish about where maltiness comes from. Yeah. Maltiness comes from mainly the the grains that you use. The flavors of those grains, how the grains were malted in the first place, the malting process creates a lot of a lot of the flavors that we detect and aromas that we detect as maltiness. And in your process, the things that would affect maltiness might be things more like a decoction mash, where uh, the the boiling, the Maillard reactions that you'll get from uh, uh, the decoction, things like that will affect maltiness. Okay. And you, um, you know, the the different yeast strains will accentuate or mask some of the malt flavors, hot flavors. I don't think they do anything to enhance one or the other. I, I, it's uh, you know sometimes people say the yeast are you know creating maltiness, but they're not creating maltiness. I think they're they're getting out of the way of. The maltiness are getting out of the way of the hops, and so you know one tends to seem accentuated over the other in certain strains. Well, 
so the multiness anyway. has to be an overall A to Z from the, your your strike water, your mash temp, your boil through the hops you use to the yeast you use. Then it's got to be a variable of all that. Then yes, um, you know a, a lot of little things will affect it, but the 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 vast majority of it comes from your grain bill hmm. and the, how the grain was malted. So it's important to use a high quality malt. Uh, you know, you got to use a grain supplier that's giving you, you know, uh, fresh malt that's in good, good condition. And, uh, you know, the maltster, you know, and this, this is going to vary year to year based on, you know, the source, source grains mm-hmm. that they used. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of little things in play, but, you know, a protein rest and a high mash temperature, I do not generate malt characteristics. See, I just think of that, those things <clears throat> affecting malt profile. So I just contribute that to maltiness. Yeah, don't, I think if you did some side by sides, okay. you'd, you'd find out that that really wasn't wasn't affecting. Uh, well, let's that. talk about yeast then, real quick. Uh-huh. I mean, before we get into, it, I mean, compare a Southern German lager versus a Bach yeast. You know, I'm right. They'll they'll that will affect the beer yes, profile. Sure, sure, and absolutely, that. and that and that and it's not it's not as simple as um, well, you know, the sugars got eaten or not. You know what happens, and the the thousands of uh, compounds that end up in the beer, you know, play a big role. Right. You know, and some of them have a masking character, some of them don't, and some of them, uh, you know, um, like I, I guess you could look at it as uh, some of the flavors uh, uh, enhance the maltiness just because they're in a more of a supporting role than they are a masking role. So, uh, you know, that's a possibility too. Um, <clears throat> Engines pumping and thumping. All right, time. we're running, we're running up against the break. So when we come back, uh, we're going to get into the recipes of uh, Munichellus and. Uh, well, yeah, we are. All right, call in eight 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 four zero one beer players. And secretly stern as they speed through the finish. The flags go down, the fans get up, and they get out of town. The arena is empty, except for one man still driving and striving as fast as he can. The sun has gone down, and the moon has come up. And long ago, somebody. This is the Jameel Show. We're back. Yes, we are. You swallowed your microphone there, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I got a little too close on that. All right, so we're talking about Munichellus, and uh, it's a you know a, a easy drinking beer. You drink it volume, malty, low bittering, not sweet. Uh, you know, real light color. Uh, you know, three to five SRM, darker than like a Bud Miller Coors, oh, yeah. uh, but uh, still golden. And then uh, an alcohol range of Around five percent, five point two, in there. Uh, I, you know, all the commercial examples that are good of a Munichellus that are really the best, they're all in Germany. Yeah, unfortunately, <clears throat> I'm I'm sorry, but I haven't found a really good one in in the U.S. I wish uh, Gordon Beer should make one. Yeah, that they should. I mean, yeah, they make a killer pilsner. Yeah, they. But uh, you know, or you know, uh, uh, like a bow bow pilsner. We should call Dan right now. But you know, Munichellus. Um, and when they're good, I tell you, they are just fantastic. And you, know, you get that intense maltiness, but, uh. I've had your Hellas. 
Yeah. Yeah, on tap here. That was very good. After you just shook it up and. No, no, it settled out like there. three or four days. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I think Justin drank it in about four days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I brewed that and then I was like, man, this is really good. Well, this is, you know, I'm going to have to bottle some yeah. of this. And then it got down to like a half a gallon left. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. You know, what the heck? I'm having that so I, I brought the, you know, the last half gallon down here. And I, all full of yeast. Stir it up. Yeah, it was just all the yeast. Here, and finish it off, kids. But I'm just like, oh, man. That one turned out really good. Yeah, it's very rarely do I ever see you really talk about a beer, and that was one of the few that you were Yeah, I was like, pretty excited Dude. with that one. That one, uh, you know, and there's those little magical things that, that do or don't, uh, uh, you know. What would you say was magical about your Hellas? It tasted good. Because <laughs> you're Mr. Malty? No. <laughs> yeah. It was Malty. Yeah. Uh, all right. So l- let's get into the recipe a bit. Uh, I've got uh, several recipes here. I've got uh, my uh, Munich Hellas recipe, all grain. Then i got an extract version of that, uh, which I haven't brewed the extract version. I just uh, you know convert from all grain for the purposes of people who are brewing uh, extract. And then uh, John's got his uh, Munichellus recipe as well. All right, <clears throat> let's let's get into the uh, common aspects over here. Uh, starting gravity about uh, ten fifty on mine. What do you got there? You Mine's got a range like of ten forty eight to ten fifty two. So ten fifty. Yeah. All right. So your <clears throat> your starting gravity is around ten fifty. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Thank you. Um, as far as uh, the grain bow goes, I like to use uh, pretty much just Pilsner malt, and then I, I, I do a touch of uh, Munich and a very small smattering of uh, melanoidin malt. Melanoidin? Melanoidin. So in an 11-gallon batch, I'm using uh, like 19.5 pounds of Pilsner, a pound of Munich, and a quarter pound of melanoidin. Hmm. So it's 94% Pilsner. I, use, I like the Durst uh, Pilsner, either the Turbo or the regular. Yeah, uh, that's a fine uh, Pilsner malt, uh, German Pilsner malt, and then I use about uh, four and a half percent Munich and about one percent or four point eight Munich and one point two percent melanoidin. So just a just a tiny bit of melanoidin malt, and I I think you could drop the melanoidin malt. Now, why do you add that? It adds uh, some melanoidins. Okay. Right. Well, so one of the things you get from the decoction is uh, increased melanoidins, right? Melanoidin formation. Now, melanoidins are, it, it's the difference between, uh, I think I said this before, be, between a slice of white bread and a slice of toasted white bread, you've generated melanoidins on the, on the, on the bread. And that's where a lot of the flavors, those are the flavors that come from cooking food. That's why we like our foods cooked. That's why we like barbecue, meat barbecued and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Increased melanoidins, the high heat. And the moisture and the uh, proteins, the amino acids um, uh, forming, and the sugars forming those uh, those complex flavors. So you're adding melanoidin to give you an impression of grain character, maltiness, maltiness, Mal- maltiness uh, melanoidin. Well, not even really maltiness, but uh, uh, is it a flavor? <clears throat> it's a flavor. Okay, flavor and aroma. Interesting. So similar to what you might get from decoction. Okay. So I do that. If you do an extract uh, version of this, uh, you replace the Pilsner with uh, 14 and a half pounds of uh, uh, a Pilsner uh, liquid malt extract or dry malt extract, <clears throat> and then uh, 
a pound of the Munich light, uh, liquid malt extract, and then you could steep the melanoid in malts. Hmm. Now, John, he's uh, he's using, uh, let's see here, uh, 85% German Pilsner, 10% German Munich, and 5% German Carafoam. And again, I, I think that's a that's a good recipe too. I think uh, nothing wrong with that. It's um, more Munich than I would use. I think mm-hmm. uh, about twice the amount of Munich, and uh, you know that's fine. I, I think uh, I think you could go that way. I've, uh, I've been kind of screwing around with the percentages of Munich malt uh-huh. because I I really think it affects a lot of the grain of the, the overall malt character of the yes. beer. Yeah, and I I brewed it again, but I did twenty percent Munich. Wow. And as it's aged, I don't really like it because it's almost too grainy. Yeah. You know. They're too Munich-y. Munich has a distinct flavor. It's, it's still a very good beer, but I think I'm going to even change what you just said. What was it, 10? No, 15, 10%? Yeah, you had 85 Pilsner, 10%, 10% Munich, yeah. and 5% Carafoam. Yeah. I'll probably go 5% Munich next time trying that. Right, right. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm around 5% Munich. Uh, I think the important thing is... Like you're talking on the break, you'll get uh, most of your malt character from that Pilsner malt, mm-hmm. and that you you can go almost you know 100 percent Pilsner malt and make a fine Munich Helles. Oh, for sure. I don't think you need any of these other malts in there. Well, I think the, now, the goal with brewing a Munich Helles is capturing that aroma. Yes, that malt aroma, and that's hard to do. Well, I think a lot of that is due to fermentation and you know clean brewing process and all that. Mm-hmm. I think you know. I've been trying to clone Augustiner, uh-huh. and I mean that's really hard to do, and haven't been successful yet. But if you smell Augustiner, mm-hmm. it's got that grainy character, but it's got a little bit of sweetness from the German pills, mm-hmm. and a little bit of Sauz or Hollowtower hops, just a hint of like floralness. It's, right. it's, it's awesome. Well, and one of the other problems folks will have a lot of times is they'll they generate quite a bit of DMS, yeah, in their lagers, and uh, and how do you get rid of DMS? A couple of things. DMS is uh, <clears throat> comes from um, converting um, SMM to uh, DMS when it's heated, right? You heat your word up, and <clears throat> anytime it's over 140 degrees Fahrenheit, you're generating DMS. Until uh, until you drive it, you drive it all off by a long enough boil, you know you won't have that problem anymore. But with a pale Pilsner malt, there's a lot of SMM. That just exists in the gray? Yes. Okay. And the reason it isn't in the other malts is because they get kilned at a higher temperature and that the it gets converted and driven off okay. ahead of time. All that's trapped in the grain when you get it for a Pilsner malt. Hmm. And you put that in there and people do their boil. They'll cover them. They don't get a, a vigorous, vigorously, they don't vigorously boil the, uh, the wort. And, uh, you know, that'll, that'll leave, uh, quite a bit behind. But one of the prime suspects is switching from immersion chillers to, uh, counterflow chillers. And one of the issues that, that you can have is if you don't, uh, get the, uh, the wort through the chiller fast enough, uh, the temperature sits there near boiling and it's still converting and you, but you're not, uh, boiling actively yeah. and it's getting trapped in the, in the wort. And, uh, you need to drive off, uh, you know, when it's getting converted, as long as it's boiling, it's getting driven off as it's boiled. 
So sitting there warm, um, you know, less than boiling, but over 140 is a problem. So chill quickly, chill the entire wort quickly, and that'll reduce it. And, and uh, so many times you get these beers where they seem, they got that sweetness, and you got that Pilsner malt and that sweetness in the background. We talked about this a long time ago, you remember? Mm-hmm. And there was the one beer we were trying, and it had that, you know, uh, yeah, I was like, well, this, this has a bunch of Pilsner malt in it. And, uh, I think you're saying, no, 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 I think it was, you know, it was like all Munich or something like that. And I'm like, no, it's, it's Pilsner because you can smell it. Yeah. You can smell the DMS. You yeah. can smell the, the Pilsner malt in the background. And it gets that combination that ends up seeming kind of sweet and fruity almost. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a critical part of, uh, of brewing these, brewing these well. I have a question for you for process. Uh, would you recommend when, if you are using the immersion chiller, keep the lid off while you cool until you get to about 140 and then put the lid on well yeah that, that or 150 yeah, I you, mean. you can because um, that's all going to fall back in any residual dms if you had the lid on right so well it, it can condense on the lid and then drip back in right uh, but generally it's fast enough that it's not that much of an issue okay uh, i do the whirlpool chiller with the immersion chiller and yeah. you know in a minute you're below 140 sure and that's sufficient enough. Yeah, that you, you know, it's uh, if if you can do it within a few minutes, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, then uh, it's not too bad. I think I think it's it's just fine. And some of it can get uh, driven off uh, by a vigorous uh, fermentation as well. Uh, let's see here. So on uh, bittering, I like uh, you know one addition at sixty minutes. Uh, and I do, uh. And that's it? Yeah, one, on a Hellas, yeah. Wow. Be- because, one of the things is, you will get hop flavor and aroma out of that 60 minute edition. You don't need to add late hops to a beer like this. Well, you're looking for some of the balance of sweetness out. Right. Okay. So, so you need know. some bittering to, to balance it out. I'm, I'm going, uh, like around 18 IBUs, 18, you, you, you target around the 18 to, to 20 range, mm-hmm. uh, is plenty. Cause again, it's a, you know, uh, it attenuates fairly low and you should, you should be, uh, you know, a plenty to balance. Mm-hmm. And you will get, um, you know, if you want more hop flavor and aroma, use a lower alpha, uh, German noble hop, okay. you know, a Halitower or something like that, mm-hmm. and, uh, or Tetanang, and, Use the lower alpha one so you're putting more in at the bittering and you will get the flavor and aroma will come through. That's, you know, that's pretty much how it's done a lot of times. I'm surprised you're uh, using Magnum. I mean, I like brewed, Magnum. Brutus style. I mean, wouldn't you want to use a noble hop to be? Magnum's a derivative of, uh, middle fruit. Oh, okay. So, uh, it's, it's, it it's got a very, no, it's got a very similar, um, it's a German, uh, uh hop. It's got a very, uh, uh, traditional uh, uh, flavor profile. Okay. Very uh-huh. clean though, um, and again, you can use uh, you know a traditional hop and be just fine. Now you're using uh, sauce in your in your recipe. Yeah, which is um, s- small amount of sauce. Right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what was your bittering? Sauce. No, like how many IBUs? You don't do IBUs though. No. <laughs> you do I just way. go by feel. Feel. I use my my feel my mojo. Um, a half ounce sauce, sixty minutes at uh, three point four, and an ounce at the last one minute. That doesn't seem like enough bittering to me. 
Uh, it, it worked. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, the, the majority of bittering, uh, you get from the first 15 minutes of the hops being in the, in the work. And if you do, uh, an addition at the last minute and you're not crash chilling your, your entire work, you're solemnizing the, uh, acids and alpha acids and, uh, you're, it, it, you're getting more bitterness out of there as well. And, uh, it's a, it's a surprising thing. I, I was just up at the, the hop school, uh, up in Yakima and, uh, How was the that? guy from Dogfish Head, it was great. The guy from Dogfish Head was there and he was talking about their, their continuous hopping Sir Hops a lot and all that. And, uh, I had asked him some questions and, and it boils down to the fact that really the difference in bittering from like a 30 minute edition and a 60 minute edition is almost negligible. Hmm. You know, it, it really, can't tell. you're, you know, it's, it's pretty small unless you're talking about massive amounts of, of hopping and things like that. So, uh, it's interesting how, you know, most of that bittering comes, comes later on. Uh, as far as mash temperature goes, I like, uh, to, to target around, uh, 150, which is, uh, 150 Fahrenheit, around 66 degrees, uh, centigrade. No, and, and, uh, John goes with, uh, 155. But you're starting out with a protein rest. Yeah. And what happens when you, when you're doing the protein rest and then you're, you're taking 30 minutes to raise, uh, up through 155. Um, gonna get a lot of fermentable sugars. Yeah, that range from 145 to 155, mm-hmm. um, it's gonna, you're converting as you go, especially if you're using some of these, uh, modern malts. You know, it's probably all converted before you get to 155. Sure. sure. Um, so you, you're ending up with a nice dry, dry example. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd be comfortable splitting the difference and saying, you know, 152 if you're doing, you know, single infusion. Um, you know, I, I do single infusion at 150 and, uh, you know, it seems to work out okay. Uh, again, that's, 150 would be 66C, uh, 155 would be, oh, let me look at my cheat sheet here, would be, uh, around 68C. That's a pretty low mash temp for you. 150. 150? Yeah, yeah. and again, cause it needs to be drier. Right. Right. So okay. you want, you don't want it to, to end up, uh, too much mouthful, too sweet, uh, anything like that. Mm. You want some, uh, you want that thing to finish out. As far as, uh, <clears throat> boil time, I have taken to going with, since I switched to the Whirlpool immersion chiller, I have taken to going to a 60 minute boil or like a 65 minute boil. And, uh, and then doing a, a 60 minute, uh, bittering hop and then that's it. And, You've changed what? Yeah, I've gone from ninety to down to to sixty. You know, getting that whirlpool immersion chiller, um, it allows me to not worry so much about DMS. So you're doing a ninety minute, this thirty minutes just to boil off DMS, basically. Yeah, if you if you get past like a hundred minutes, yeah, um, you know, most of the DMS is not going to be there. Okay. Uh, so you can do like a two hour boil, one hundred twenty minutes, and not have so much concern about DMS, but you're getting a lot more darkening in the, uh, in the wort. You're getting a little more caramelization. You're getting a little more melanoid formation. Uh, but I like the 60. See, I do a 90. Cause it's I, I'm cool with 90. I, the, the first 30 minutes, yeah. you can smell corn. Oh yeah. Right off. It's sure. disgusting. Yeah. 
And then yeah. you put your head over that boil and it's just yep. corn. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I do it. Right. And you'll, you get the bulk of it out of there in 60 mm-hmm. minutes. And again, if you're going to do 60, crash chill that bad boy. Quickly. Yeah. If you're not going to crash chill that bad boy, you better do at least 90. Hmm. And I think 90 is a good, a good, uh, compromise because you, you're not going to end up, uh, with too much darkening that way. See, I use a counterflow. Uh huh. But I also whirlpool through the counterflow back into my boil kettle. Right. So you're, you're doing the whirlpool through the counterflow. Though. Right. Right. Do right. So how, how are you liking that? And we haven't, uh, and, I, and I used to not whirlpool, you know, right. but I, it leaves so much true and hot break behind. It's awesome. Right. Right. Know? And it's probably chilling, uh, nice and fast still. You get getting... to a hundred in about three to five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fast. That's, uh, so whether you use an immersion or a counterflow, yeah. you can do this whirlpool technique yeah. and chill the entire work down much more rapidly and avoid DMS. You'll capture more of the hop flavor and aroma this way. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if it sits hot, you also lose your hop hop aroma. Oh yeah, you know those those oils uh, when they get warm, boy, they get driven off. They get driven off like at, at body temperature. Yeah. Plus, how important is it for clarity? Uh, you know, yeah, and, and get, get getting all that crud out of there is is good for uh, you know. For <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> Justin over there screwing around with the. Uh, He's just keeping stuff. us on our toes. All right. So, do you want us to take a break? Yeah, uh, let's do it. He does. Okay. What's the right song to pray, play for the break? That would have been the song I'm gonna pray. coming back. Munich Hellis. <laughs> All right. Hellis. So we'll be back in, in just a moment, and we're going to wrap up our discussion of Munich Hellis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I could open my arms Now, back to the Jameel Show. We're back. We're discussing uh, Munich Hellas is our style today. And, uh, alright, so we went through our grain bill and our hopping and the uh, reasoning behind that. And now, let's get into fermentation and the yeast. And, uh, John is using, uh, the, uh, the Eyinger strain, which is, uh, Bach. White Labs, uh, Bach East, the, uh, 833, which, uh, I think, uh, I was the one who really got you going on that, right? Yeah. And, and you're still and, using it. And that and the, uh, South German lager is nice. And, uh, but, uh, and I, I had been culturing the Eyinger strain for many years and then, uh, White Labs came out with that, uh, their, uh, culturing it? Similar, yes. Uh, they're similar because, you know, there was nothing like it. Yeah. And White Labs has their version, which is, uh, similar to that, or will give you similar, as Chris would say, will give you similar re- results. Yeah. And they identical. won't tell you it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I like that a lot, but I started doing some more, uh, yeast experiments and fermentation experiments again. And, and when I do that, I like to use the strain that, you know, the most people are using. So I, I went back to, uh, uh, White Labs 830 and the Y Yeast, uh, 2206. And, uh, I'll tell you, I really like those, that yeast. You like German lager. 
Yeah, that is a that is a fine yeast. There's a reason why, uh, you know, a lot of brewers use that yeast. That's well, that's a good yeast. Well, EJ Fair uses it. Why do you think he uses it? What do you like about that yeast? Um, you know, it, it turns out a really nice beer. And if if you're trying to duplicate, um, uh, you know, a, a certain type of beer, um, you know, and it's really critical to you to get either kind of that Eyinger character or to get like, you know, a Spaten character or a, you know, a Hacker Shore character or, you know, one of these, the characters of one of these, uh, places, you want to use the yeast that they're using. However, I, I say, you know, I've said this a long time, it's fine to use, you know, like the Eyinger yeast for all your lagers, you know? Which I do use. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, pick one lager yeast and, uh, you know, if you're, if you're brewing nice and clean and you can repitch yeast, it's great because then you can do, you know, three or four lagers in a row mm-hmm. off a nice pitch of yeast and you don't have to, you know, switch yeasts and, uh, growing up lager yeast can be uh, a chore sometimes. So, uh, uh, you know, just just pick the one that you like. Uh, but uh, I'm very pleased with the, the 830 and the uh, 2206 from White East. Well, I stuck with the Bach East because you had told me years ago to say, you know, figure out one yeast. Yes. And work with it. Yep. You know, that's your baby. Yep. Let it grow. Yep. Caretake it. Yep. And learn how it and works. And obviously it's paid off with loggers. I mean, yeah. just understanding the strain itself. Learn, learn, uh, what makes it happy, what makes mm-hmm. it sad. You know, yeah. it may sound, uh, weird or touchy feely, but, you know, those, those yeasts, if you, you get the right conditions for them, mm-hmm. they're very happy. And if, and, you know, sometimes, you know, the yeasts match, you know, your style of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you make a big thing of wort, pitch, uh, you know, an equal amount of yeast into all of them. You know, split up the wort and pitch an equal amount of yeast in all of them, and then see which one you like best. For sure. And that's probably the yeast you should go with. You know, it for some reason it matches your water or the way that you mash or, you know, uh, the way that you ferment or you know all those things. And uh, you know, you'll you'll get nice good results. And then you know, work that yeast and and make, you know, a hundred batches with that yeast. You know, not with that one pitch of yeast, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know. Make make a hundred batches and understand how the yeast works, and then you really can start dialing in your process, and you get much better control. Now on the uh, on the yeast, I like to grow up a pitch of yeast, make make or make a starter, and ferment that starter out, and then you know decant the liquid and uh, pitch the yeast. Um, how many days before? Uh, usually uh, a few days before. You got to have enough time for the the yeast to fully ferment mm-hmm. uh, and rebuild their glycogen reserves at the end, and then uh, go dormant. And uh, you want you don't want to uh, you know uh, force it too much because you can end up leaving behind some of the uh, higher attenuating yeasts in the in the spent uh, wort in the beer mm-hmm. when you decant that. So you got to be careful of that. And then I like to uh, uh, pitch the chill my wort down to. 43, 44 degrees around uh, Fahrenheit, which is about 7C. And you drop your true before you pitch, right? Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I get rid of all that. I leave that behind in the kettle. And then, uh, uh, you know, no, none of the break material goes into the, into the fermenter. Or, you know, very, very little. And then, uh, I, I, I pitch my yeast, and I oxygenate heavily, and, you know, in that colder wort, you're gonna trap more oxygen, and I let the, uh, the ferment naturally warm up to about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees C, and ferment it out there nice and slow and steady for, uh, you know, uh, four weeks or so. Four weeks in the primary? 
Uh, yeah, generally I, I let uh, I just let it sit there. I forget about them, and yeah. I, I had a Schwartz beer that I brewed uh, I don't know a couple months ago. That's a good beer. <clears throat> I just kegged it uh, uh, this last uh, Tuesday. <laughs> You're like a six week ferment. Uh, it was week? like eight weeks or. Ten weeks or something. I was just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. There's it's no fine. rush. It's, it's, would you say? Yeah, it's not gonna. As long as your yeast is healthy to start with, yeah, it's not gonna cough up and die on you that right. quick. So, uh, yeah, you know, don't don't leave it in there for too long. I was probably pushing it a bit, but uh, you could go eight weeks, I think, with a lager yeast. Yeah, primary. yeah. It'll clean itself up, settle out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, the yeast do start breaking down mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time. They that start leaking, is. and uh, you're gonna get that into your beer. Yeah. And that's gonna that can affect head retention, flavor, you know, aroma, a lot of different things. So, uh, you know, but there's no worries in four to six weeks. That's you know not gonna be an issue if you're starting with healthy yeast. What do you think about most homebrewers doing secondary fermentation? Like they'll they'll get it off the primary after about four to seven days. Yeah, I think that's a mistake, especially on a lager. Mm-hmm. And you want the yeast in there. Um, What's well, the bottom fermenting yeast? So you're you're basically leaving all the goodies behind. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I you know yeah, I I would rather just leave it in there and not screw with it. Uh, John likes to uh, uh, now you say you like to to start out warm at seventy five and then cool it down to fifty within twelve hours. Yes. I now, do. how many? Uh, so, are you making a starter with that? Or are you just I, you, my tossing starters, in tubes of yeasts or what? It's made the night before or the morning uh-huh. of. I'll pitch uh-huh. two vials. Uh-huh. I'll make a gallon starter, uh-huh. ten gallons, uh-huh. and usually it's just awake. It's fermenting. It's right. just peaking. Right. I don't know if it's making alcohol yet. Maybe uh-huh. a little bit. And then I'll, if, if you're not giving it continuous air, it's making alcohol. Okay. Well, it's usually on the stir plate. So. Okay. Then it's getting continuous air. It's yeah. not making any alcohol. Okay. And then I'll just pitch. It's just making yeast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I I don't I don't really like if I brew on the fifty gallon system. I don't have a way to chill it down. Uh-huh. To 44 degrees. Uh-huh. So I just pitch warm and then I can uh-huh. cool it within 12 degrees. Uh-huh. I guess I could the next morning pitch. Right. But it's worked for me right. and I yeah. think it makes a fine lager, you know. Yeah, you know, and that, if, if you're pitching enough yeast and you're chilling it down fast enough, uh, you'll probably get away with some of it. And uh, what I'm thinking happening a lot of times is you're you're chilling it down pretty fast. You just stick it in the fridge and, and let it go. It's not a right controlled away. drop, right? No, it's right away. It's pitched warm and then cooled immediately. Yeah, yeah. and you know, so the you know any any time you cool work rapidly with mm-hmm. the yeast in there, beer rapidly with the yeast in there, uh, you know they tend to you know kind of go dormant and then they pick back up mm-hmm. when things uh, stabilize or you know when they you know if they stop at a warm enough temperature. Um, See, I have a fear of lag time. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I've left the, as long as your process is clean. Yeah. You know, sometimes people worry too much about lag time. Mm. They don't, uh, they don't, um, you know, you, you, what you want is healthy yeast. So if you Number have, one. but if you have, if you have healthy yeast in an environment, you don't see fermentation for 48 hours, is that okay? Uh, you know, it's 24, you should see some. In a lager, it takes, Two or three times longer to see signs of fermentation mm-hmm. than it does in an ale, okay. because the wort is far cooler. Right. It's going to handle more dissolved CO2. Hmm. So before that supersaturates and it starts coming out as bubbles, it takes far longer. So it, it could be fermenting. You just don't see the CO2 yes. right. or any type of protein. Right. You don't see the CO2 evolving right. out of the out of the liquid. Did not know that. Right. So it, it, you know, it, it'll take longer for signs of that. So I wouldn't be too, too panicky about it. You know, one of the things, 
you know, people, sometimes people think that you can take a tube of white labs or a smack pack of Y yeast and toss that into five gallons of a Munich Hillis word at 1050 at 75 degrees and then slowly chill that down to, you know, 50 and, you know, make beer that way. And you can. Mm-hmm. And it'll turn out alright. The thing is, anytime, the more, and, and this is just a, this is just a hard cold fact. The more yeast growth you have, and the more rapid yeast growth you have, you're going to end up with more esters at the end. Right. Well, and, well, let me put it this way. You're going to end up with more esters that have a lower flavor and aroma threshold at the end. Now, there are other esters that in a different process where you're going colder, um, you'll generate more of these type of esters, mm. but they have a much higher threshold of flavor and aroma. Mm. You know, so the beer seems cooler, or right. it seems cleaner, I'm sorry. Right. So anytime you're growing yeast... And especially if you grow yeast in a and and the yeast end up uh, deficient in a certain nutrient or whatever, if you pitch um, you know a seventy five degree wort, it's not going to hold nearly as much oxygen as it will in a forty five degree wort. Right. And oxygen tends to be the highly limiting factor for the yeast as far as reproduction goes. They uh, yeast use the oxygen. To produce the sterols, the unsaturated fatty acids that they use to uh, in, improve the cell membrane health, mm-hmm. and they need that flexibility in those the sterols to be able to bud off more yeast. So, would you say you went and pitch cold, unless you were oxygenating? Because even though you're pitching a huge slurry, uh-huh. if there's no O2 in this environment, does it really? I mean, is that going to right? The, well, the larger if you have, in theory, if you have enough yeast, right, uh, you don't need to. Add any oxygen because yeast aren't going to really need to grow, hmm. right? You have enough yeast to ferment the batch out. Well, you're pitching a lot of yeast in your loggers. Is that right. is that you because you don't want ester production? You just want a large right. amount. You of want ferment? You, you want a very clean. You want very little esters. Hmm. Now you need some growth, and it, this is this is the thing that you know, Chris and uh, David uh, Logston and uh, Chris White will will tell you is. You don't want to overpitch certain beers, uh, you know, especially ales. Mm-hmm. You need yeast growth in order to provide uh, a lot of the flavors that are important to the the profile. If you're brewing an English uh, beer using English ale yeast, um, the Fuller's strain, for example, you need to get some growth in there. Otherwise, it's not going to produce the right esters mm-hmm. in the right quantities. If you pitch too much yeast, it can be just as bad as pitching too little yeast. Wow. And the beer is going to seem not quite right. So, you know, it's a balancing act. You want to get quite, you know, kind of the right uh, amount in there. All right. So what have we learned about Munich Hellas today? All kinds of stuff. It's a good taste of beer that you drink in quantity. Oh, yeah. We both a agree that uh, you want to be in that uh, maybe 90% range on the Pilsner Malt as your right. green bill. Maybe uh, 5% Munich or so, maybe a little bit more. And then uh, use a Carafoam or a Melanoid Malt or something like that to, to make up the rest. Mm-hmm. Kind of around there. And it should be malt-focused. Malt-focused, but it shouldn't be sweet. Right. you got to attenuate fully. you got to dry it out. And uh, lightly hopped, uh, you know, uh, 18 IBUs. 
these recipes uh, you can find on the website. All these recipes that we talked about uh, will will be on the the website. Uh, go down to the Jamel page, scroll to the bottom. There's a link that'll take you to the recipes on uh, Fred's uh, Bonjour site, which is a great source. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, that's it. Munich Ellis. Yeah. Question from the chat room: uh, For the starter for this particular beer, should that be done at 50 degrees or so, also, or uh, can that be done at room temp? No, you can do that uh, at room temp. You can you can do your starters for ales or lagers around 70 degrees, 72 degrees. But if you do, you are going to need to uh, decant the spent wort, the beer that is produced from it. You not really, you know, especially if you're doing a larger starter. If you're doing a smaller starter, relative to the volume, uh, it's not too big a deal. But on lagers, you know, you tend to decant. That's because there's flavor in that wort that you don't want. Yeah, if you're doing a, you know, a stir plate, you know, there could be some oxidation in there. If you're doing, uh, you know, if you're doing it warm, definitely 72 degrees with a lager yeast, you're going to generate a lot of. Uh, Esters in there, at least, and uh, and <clears throat> you know the esters um, that come through. You know, a lot of it is due to really, you know, poor yeast health at the end of fermentation, and that's when all the esters uh, get into the beer. It's not really at the beginning, but it's at the end, and it's due to you know what happened in the beginning mm-hmm. of fermentation. What do you think about doing a diacetyl rest? That, do you do those? Uh, if you ferment cool, you won't generate diacetyl. If you ferment warm, you'll generate diacetyl, and you're going to need to do a diacetyl rest. But if you but do if it you're cool and then let it raise up, uh, you know, the first third cool and then raise up towards the end, it, you'll have almost none, okay. zero. Won't be detectable at that point. All right. All right, here's the deal. So you got another show coming up next. This yeah. show will actually air on the uh, 25th. Right. Uh, we we snuck it in here, so if you happen to be listening live, lucky you. Everybody else has to wait till the twenty fifth. But the regularly scheduled show is coming up next, so hang in there, right? Yes. What is it, J- uh, Jamil? Double IPA. Hang into the Brewing Network. Come back in just a couple of minutes. Jamil Show has been a production of The Brewing Network. Please send questions for Jamil to jamil at thebrewingnetwork.com. The Jamil Show airs live every other Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on The Brewing Network.